Those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks. I'm the main teaching pastor here. And last week, uh, I started a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so, uh, like with all the series I do, it, it'll, it'll go on for a while. Other people will come in. I'm on holidays in a couple of weeks. But we're going to work our way uh, section through section, verse by verse, through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so last week, we did the Beatitudes. We saw how one of the big things that a lot of people miss with the Beatitudes is that uh, one of the big things Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is he's flinging wide open the gates of the kingdom and saying, no matter how unspiritual you feel, no matter how unspiritual you look, the least of these can come into the kingdom and live the kingdom life. And so that was one of the things we saw. Now today, we're going to look at verses 13 to 16 uh, and Jesus' vision for the church, Jesus' vision for the people of God uh, to be salt and light. So let's read that and then we'll pray. Jesus says, starting in verse 13 in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so Jesus' vision, okay? Start with the Beatitudes. He welcomes everybody in. He says, no matter how poor or hungry or unspiritual you look, I'm inviting you into the kingdom. Now before he gets into all the practical stuff about anger and lust and marriage and worry and finances and all that sort of stuff, before he gets there, he casts his vision here in this passage of what we as a people of God are supposed to be on the earth. This is our purpose and he says, you are to be salt and you are to be light. Let's pray and then we'll look at those two things. Thank you, Jesus, for the Sermon on the Mount. And it just what a wonderful treasure that you would leave us with such specific teaching and guidance as to what kingdom living is supposed to look like, what you, what, what you desire to see us live like. And I just pray that as we look at this today, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would inspire us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live up to the vision that you're casting for us here. In your name we pray, amen. You are the salt of the earth. Now, when we read that in today's culture, we, I don't know if we always know quite what to do with that. Uh, in today's culture, we use salt mostly. I mean, one of the primary reasons, other than I guess here in Manitoba, we use it sometimes on the sidewalks in winter, but the primary reason why we use salt is as a flavor additive, right? So if you want to make your corn on the cob taste better, you're going to use some salt and, and of course, butter. That's not in the, in the parable, but butter is an important component too. Um, I don't want to leave that out, but Jesus didn't say the church is butter, but just salt, okay? But, so if you want your corn on the cob to taste better, you're going to have some salt and butter, okay? If you want your popcorn to taste better, you're going to have some salt and, and also, again, some butter and mashed potatoes and, and uh, all that sort of stuff. Salt and butter just make the world a better place, but salt, we use it as a flavor additive, right? So French fries, all that kind of thing, okay? And so what is Jesus saying here? You are the salt of the earth. Well, he's not saying you make the earth taste better, okay? That's not the point. And what we have to realize, and again, this is, I mean, many people would know this already, but in Jesus' day and in Jesus' culture, the primary reason, a far and away the primary reason, I mean, you know, taste was maybe a little bit of the reason why they use salt, but the primary reason why they use salt in Jesus' day and culture is as a preservative, okay? So obviously in Jesus' day and age, they didn't have, you know, refrigeration, okay? Most of you who are here today, you not only have a fridge in your kitchen, you probably have a big freezer somewhere in your garage or in your basement, and it's filled with meat and all kinds of good things, and that's because we, so we have freezers, okay? In Jesus' day, they didn't have freezers, okay? They didn't have fridges, okay? So how did they keep stuff from spoiling? Well, for thousands of years, even long before Jesus' day, but for thousands of years, uh, human beings, civilization, they used salt to preserve their food. You, put, you rub salt on the meat or the food that you're trying to preserve, it absorbs the moisture. It, it won't keep the food forever, but it will slow down the processes of decay and, and, uh, and, and all that sort of stuff so you can preserve your food, which is actually a huge... Uh, I mean, that, I mean the, you know, using salt as a preservative was a huge building block for cities being able to grow bigger and civilizations being able to grow bigger uh, early on after God made Adam and Eve because before they had salt to preserve stuff, you, you had no way. You were at the mercy of whatever season you were in. So if you were in the, in the season of plenty during the year, during the harvest season, you had lots of food to eat, but you couldn't keep any of the extra for the seasonal lean. 
And so, you know, the advent of using salt as a preservative was a huge building block for human civilization to be able to grow and expand um, because it allowed them to save extra for when they had lots for when there would be less, okay? And so salt, its primary function in Jesus' day and age was as a preservative to keep things. And so Jesus says to the church, he says to the people of God, he says, you are the salt of the earth, okay? So you are a preservative in the earth. You are a preservative in the culture. Now you say, well, what does that mean? I mean, how is it that we are a preservative in the culture? How is it that we are preservative in the earth? You are the salt of the earth. Like, what is Jesus talking about? There's probably many things we could look at, but two primary things I want to look at today, how we as the people of God are a preservative in the culture. And the first way is that God's people, when we stand for truth boldly and we live out truth and we stand for right and wrong in God's laws, we actually slow the tide, the advance of wickedness and moral decay in the society around us. Isn't that true? I mean, you take a society where there are no people of God, you compare it to a society where you've got, even if it's a small number, but you put you know, the, some people of God, a group in there who are following Jesus, and they're standing for right and wrong, and they're living out the example of right and wrong, and they're preaching about truth and righteousness and right and wrong, and they actually have a positive effect on the culture around them. They actually slow the advance of wickedness and the advance of moral decay, which will, which will cause the society around them to crumble, Okay? And there's many examples we could look at, many examples from history and modern times. I mean, one uh, modern example today, you, you look at, uh, uh, you know, marriage and family. Uh, you look at, you know, over the last, let's say, 50, 60 years, maybe starting in the 1960s with the sexual revolution and, you know, moving on through, you know, the 70s and 80s, no-fault divorce came into the court systems to make it easier to break up marriages and, and the, the constant bombardment for the last number of decades in the media of filth promoting, you know, uh, uh, sex and pleasure as a way of life as opposed to commitment and marriage. And then right up until recently, you look at, you know, even the assault on the definition of marriage itself. But you look over the last 50, 60 years, and what you see is this tide in our culture, this assault on marriage. And you see this decay of family values, okay? And so obviously the church hasn't been able to stand up and stop that totally, but if you want to know what's the one, you look over the last 50, 60 years, what's the one institution that throughout that whole time, what is the one institution that has been standing against that decay and that assault? And it's the church. And I'm not just talking about, you know, local churches. I'm talking about the church, the broad church, Christians, Christian organizations like Focus on the Family and many others and churches and thousands of Christians in places of leadership and writing letters and all that sort of stuff. It's been the church primarily over the last 50, 60 years that has stood up to slow it down. We haven't stopped it, but to slow it down, the decay of family values and, and, and marriage and all that sort of stuff. Now, you sit there and you say, okay, well, okay, so the church is a preservative. It's a preservative, uh, you know, of tradition. You know, it slows down progress, but it's not like it slows down the decay of society. Like, how is church a preservative of society? I mean, yeah, okay, you're a preservative of marriage, but how are you preserving society? Well, the thing you have to understand is when we preserve God's laws, and right and wrong and truth as we see it enshrined in God's law, when we do that, we actually are saving the culture from itself. We're not just preserving tradition. We're actually preserving society. When we work to preserve God's law, we're actually working to preserve society. So on the marriage example, um, just to show you, when we fight for marriage, we're not just fighting for marriage. We're actually fighting for, this, for, the, for, for society itself, okay? Uh, 1996, let me, let me share with you a study. The United States Congress in 1996 commissioned a, a huge study, okay, uh, on marriage and stuff, a nationwide report on a whole bunch of things, not just marriage. But they found the following uh, 11 benefits in communities where there are strong, where there's a higher percentage of strong, traditional man and woman marriages, they found the following 11 benefits. It's the United States government. They weren't looking to find this. They weren't biased to have to find this. They were just doing a nationwide study. Uh, how do we help communities? All sorts of stuff. They found the following 11 benefits in communities where there were higher percentages of couples in healthy, traditional marriages. And here's the 11 benefits they found in those communities that had higher percentages of of healthy traditional marriage. They found in higher rates of physically healthy citizens in those places. So you want to solve your health care problem? Start with marriage, okay? Higher rates of emotionally 
healthy citizens. You want to solve your, your men, a lot of mental health issues, start with healthy families and healthy marriages. They found higher rates of educated systems. You want to fix citizens. You want to, I mean, you want to fix the education system. Start with marriage. Start with healthy families. They found lower domestic violence rates. You don't need as many police. Lower crime statistics. Lower teenage pregnancy rates. Lower rates of juvenile delinquency. Higher rates of home ownership. Lower rates of migration. Higher property values. And decreased need for social services. Wow, look at that. It was here all along, wasn't it? I mean, you didn't even have to do a study costing millions of dollars. It was here all along. Genesis 2.24. Okay? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be, and be united with his wife, and they shall become one, and out of that you have a family. And so they actually found this. They, they found two things. They, they were so convincing. The, the study conclusions were so convincing. The results were so strong that uh, the Congress made the, these two conclusions. They said marriage is the foundation of a successful society, and marriage is an essential institution which promotes the interests of children. And they then passed the, the uh, Deficit Reduction Act, which allocates $150 million a year to the promotion of healthy marriages and fatherhood in the U.S. Now, that's just, that's just one thing, okay? That when we stand for God's truth, we're not just standing for some abstract idea. We're actually standing for something that makes society stronger. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. By standing for truth, we actually keep society. We preserve society, and we keep it from falling apart as quickly, in a way, we preserve society. Now, we don't stop it totally. Until Jesus comes back, you know, wickedness marches on. So we're a preservative. We don't stop it entirely, but we slow it down. I mean, try this for an imagination exercise. Go back 50, 60 years and take out all the Christians out of North America. Take every, every single Christian and church out. And I wonder, now fast forward back to where we are today, and I wonder what it would look like today. Would we even recognize the social la landscape? See, we are a preservative, Jesus says. You're the salt of the earth. You're preserving society from itself. You just put some good people in there standing for solid truth and, and God's law. You put them in there and it slows the decay. It slows and keeps society from falling apart as quickly as it possibly can. I love, uh, you know, you, you see this in, true, in, in history. I love uh, studying history. I've read lots of books. You think about, you know, the Roman Empire in particular, um, and what you look at with empire after empire after empire is these empires, they rise up on the, on the backs of, even if they weren't Christian, but in the case of the Roman Empire, they rose up on the backs of very strong morals, virtue and honor and courage and strong family units, and, but then the, the empire gets very strong. They become very successful uh, decadence and materialism and sexual immorality comes in and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the nation goes down, the empire goes down and it eventually falls apart militarily and economically but the moral is what rots first. Proverbs 28 verse 2, I love what the NLT version says, when there is moral rot within a nation, its government topples easily. When you just have wickedness, I mean you look at any country, you find a country that has a large body of healthy families, healthy family units, and people with strong work ethic and, and integrity, you look at a country like that, we always think, you know, it's all about economic policies and where's the stock market at and what, you know, what decisions are the government making. That's what determines how good the economy is or how strong the nation is. Well, amen, all those things are important, okay? Economic policies are important. What the government does is important. But you, you find a country that is filled with people where there are good family units and they're raised with strong work ethic and, and good character and integrity, and that is a country that is going to be able to succeed and produce and be productive in the long haul. You find another country where there's laziness and corruption and broken families rampant in that country, it doesn't matter how good the policies are, it doesn't matter how good government decisions are, that country cannot be productive or amass wealth in the long term. And so Proverbs 28, verse 2, when there is moral rot within a nation, it's government tolls easy. It's the moral strength of a nation that makes it strong or weak. And so as Christians, we are supposed to be the salt of the earth by, by upholding truth and God's law and right and wrong and living those things out and living those values out. We actually slow, we, we give strength to the culture and the society and the communities 
around us. And of course, we can look at many other examples of how the church stands against euthanasia and, and abortion and different ways that the church has stood to slow down things. And maybe they're still happening, but how the church has slowed things down and in many ways saved society from itself, okay? And so we are the salt of the earth. We're a preservative in the culture. That's how we're sp- what we're supposed to be. But there's a second way in which we are preservative in the culture. First, we're kind of preserving the culture from itself, slowing the tide of wickedness and moral decay. The second thing, though, that we do is, is when, it, or at least that we're supposed to do, is when you have a, a group of God's people in an area, they actually delay the time of the onset of God's judgment on that society. That's another way that we preserve it. That's another way that when God's people are present in an area, it keeps it from collapsing so quickly because the presence of God's people in an area, not only does it slow the tide of wickedness, it actually delays the time of the onset of God's judgment. Great example of this is uh, Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, famous story. God and a couple of angels come to uh, Abraham and Sarah to tell them that they're going to have a baby, um, Isaac, uh, in the next year. And at the end of their visit, they have lunch together. God is just about to leave. He's talking with Abraham, and, uh, and he tells Abraham, I'm now heading to Sodom to destroy Sodom because I've heard how wicked Sodom is. And of course, this makes Abraham is, is not comfortable with this. He's, he's, he's alarmed by this because he's got family in Sodom, okay? And his nephew Lot and Lot's whole family are in Sodom. And so he begins to barter and negotiate with God. Genesis 18, famous passage, great passage. Let me, let me read you a little bit here. Uh, Abraham barters with God, and he says this to God. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, because he's thinking to himself, that's a big city, lots of immorality, but there's got to be 50 righteous people there, okay? So suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find in, at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So this, first of all, this is incredible. So God's on his way to judge and destroy a society, and he promises Abraham, though, if I find only 50, if I will find only 50 people righteous who are godly, I'll actually spare the whole place. You're the salt of the earth. You're preservative. Just the presence of 50 godly people in this place will actually delay the time of God's destruction of it. Preservative. And of course, Abraham, after he says 50, he kind of thinks to himself, maybe there's not 50 in, in Sodom, right? Ooh. And so he goes on. I'll just read you a couple more verses here. Abraham answered and said, Behold, you know, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the 50 are righteous are lacking. Like, suppose five of them have gone on holidays, okay, and you only find 45. Will you destroy the whole city just because five of them aren't there? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, Abraham spoke to him, and he, you can just see him kind of, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, no, for the sake of 40, I won't do it either, right? And he works them down. He gets them down to 10. He actually takes God down to 10, and God promises Abraham, I will spare for now, but I will spare for now this entire wicked city for only 10 people. Think about the mercy of God there. And you know, sometimes, I mean, it doesn't take much. You read a little bit of the news right now. I mean, I'm reading less and less of it uh, because it's just so awful. But I can think of stuff right now in my head of articles that I won't even talk about from the pulpit here of things that have happened in our society in the last couple of months. I won't even talk about them publicly. They're so gross. They're so terrible. It's becoming very much like Sodom in our culture today. And sometimes I read these articles and people send them to me and I think to myself, I wince almost. It's like, God, why haven't you judged us already? And one of the reasons is because the people of God, as long as there is a bit of a church going, not, we can't delay it forever. At some point, Jesus is going to just, he's going to judge. There's going to be, there's going to be justice. And he did with Sodom as well. Okay? But as long as there's a people of God, there's mercy. We, we delay it. As long as there's a zealous, holy people of God who are praying and seeking God and standing for truth and not compromising, God will actually delay the time of his judgment on an incredibly wicked culture for a period of time. We are salt. As long as we remain salty, we are preservative. Jesus says you are to be a preservative in the culture to slow down the tide of wickedness and to delay the time of God's judgment. But if the salt loses its saltiness, right? 
Verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, before I was talking about how what Jesus is talking about here is preservative. He's not talking about us making the world taste better. So, but why does he talk here about taste? Uh, the thing you have to understand is in Jesus' day in Israel, there was places around the world in Jesus' day where they were mining pure salt, huge salt pans in Africa and places like that where they could get pure salt. But in Israel, the way they got their salt was mostly through dehydrating salt water out of the Dead Sea or maybe even out of uh, other places as well. But certainly that was one of the places they got it. And because of the process for getting salt, the salt they had in Israel there often had lots and lots of impurities in it. So you'd get a bag of salt, let's say. I doubt they had it in bags, but whatever they had it in. But you get a bag of salt in Jesus' day in Israel there, and this is your salt, but actually not all of it is salt. And you could get a particularly bad batch, and there's so many impurities in there, but you can't, but what's salt, what's not? You get a particularly bad batch, you know, the, the salt leaks out, it leaches out, you're using this, you're transporting it, and actually by the time you have it left there, there's like no salt left. And, and, and then it has no preservative quality. And so, you, but you could taste it. You could taste. If you had some salt, you could taste. Is this actually going to keep my meat from rotting and spoiling? You could taste it and see this isn't salt. It's lost its saltiness. I need another batch of salt. And so again, the point here, Jesus is not saying that it's about taste, that the church is about making things taste good. It's still preserved. He says, if the salt has lost its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything. Guess what? Jesus' vision for the church, for the people of God, is that we are supposed to be salt. We are supposed to not go with the flow of the culture. We're supposed to stand against it to preserve. We don't just go along and make everybody like us. Notice that Jesus does not say, you are the sugar of the earth. You notice he didn't say that. Or in his day, you are the honey of the earth. You know, sugar, sugar and honey, I mean, they're good for making things taste sweet, but they don't preserve anything. In fact, they can speed up decay, Right? And a lot of Christians today have this idea that the church is supposed to be sugar. We're supposed to be so likable and nice and never standing for anything because if we're likable enough, maybe people will like Jesus and follow him. Did you know Jesus, his goal is not to be liked by a wicked culture? He wants to be worshipped and adored and feared and obeyed as God and Lord. He doesn't want to be just liked by a wicked culture. So he doesn't say, I want you to be sugar. I want you to be taste sweet. And so people come and like me. He says, I want you to be truth. You are a prophetic voice in the culture, calling out, repent before it's too late. You're Jonah in Nineveh, telling people, this is the way of God. Turn and come this way. People say, well, I thought it was all about love. People always talk about the purpose of the church is to love. Well, amen. John 13, 35, they'll know you are my disciples by your love. Right there, that's a command. Everything we do must be done in love. There is absolutely no room for arrogance, mean-spiritedness, pride, rudeness, you know, any of that awful, disgusting behavior. There's no room for any of it. We are definitely called to love in all things, but Jesus' vision for the church is that the church will be salt. And so what we're called to is a salty love, not a sugary love. A love that is respectful but, and, and decent and kind, but strong and full of truth and bold for Jesus and bold about right and wrong. And the moment the church starts to go along with this whole thing of it's just about accepting, 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 and we just go with the culture trying to make them like us, Jesus says, when the salt has lost its saltiness, it's lost its purpose. Salt isn't good for anything else but being salty. Like if, you know, if the salt loses its saltiness, well, let's just use it for sugar. It's not good at being sugar. It's not good at being anything but salt. When it loses its salt, it's no good. It's lost its purpose. It may as well just be thrown out. In the church, it's the same way. When a church loses its witness and truth in the culture, Jesus says it may as well just be thrown away. We are prophets in the culture, warning people to repent. So we are salt. But we're also more than salt, right? We're salt and something else. We're salt, but we're salt and light. If we keep reading verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. I just, I mean, he's the master teacher, isn't he? I just love it. I just worship Jesus. I love him. Like I said last week, none of us can be Jesus, okay? There's elements of him that we, we need to emulate, but the rest of it is we just need to worship him and fear him and obey him. 
And I just love, you read this message. He just encapsulates in a few words, and it's powerful. We've been preaching his sermon for thousands of years, expounding on it, something he preached once. But he says, you are the light of the world. First of all, you're the salt of the earth. Oh, that's so good. We can just sit there and meditate and meditate on that, Jesus. And he says, you are the light of the world. We're not just salt, we're salt and we're light. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we are supposed to be salt. We're a preservative, slowing the tide of wickedness, delaying the time of judgment. But on the other hand, we're not just salt. We're not just out there telling people right and wrong and telling them to repent. That's part of it. But then there's also this thing of we are light. What does it mean we are light? Well, the world is in darkness, right? There's no question the world is in darkness. But let's make that even a little more specific. What do we mean when we say the world is in darkness? Darkness about what? I mean, the world isn't in darkness about everything. We've discovered lots of amazing things. What is the world in darkness about? The world is in darkness about Jesus. You say, no, 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 no. Lots of people know about Jesus. I mean, everybody in our culture has, everybody in Canada and the U.S. pretty much has heard the name Jesus. People know who Jesus is. No, 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 no. They might know the word Jesus. They might know that there is a religion that is, you know, called Christianity that is based around Jesus, but they are in darkness about who he really is. They are in darkness about the fact that he is actually real, number one. A lot of them just think he's a myth. A lot of them think he's just a good person. They're in darkness about the fact that he is real. That they're in darkness about the fact that he's actually the creator of the entire universe. They're in darkness about the fact that he is the only way of salvation. They're in darkness about how holy and awesome and amazing and incredible he is. They're in darkness about the fact that for all of eternity, your whole destiny is based on how you respond to Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and the world is in darkness about Jesus. In fact, if you want to look at all of the world's problems, you open up for me today a newspaper, you, put a, you open up the internet, and you find me any problem, I'll tell you what the ultimate root of every single problem and bad thing on the earth is today, and it is the fact that the world is ignorant about Jesus and in rebellion against Jesus. I mean, everything, from the bad weather to economic problems to war to mental problems and emotional problems, physical problems, ultimately, there's many, you know, there's all kinds of different things, and we can treat different things and pray for them, but ultimately, it all comes down to, it'll all be fixed when one thing happens, when Jesus comes to earth, he's king over the, all the world, and we all submit to him, that's when death gets defeated, that's when evil gets defeated, it all comes down to that, that's the problem, is the world's in darkness about Jesus, that is the one problem from which all other problems stem, and Jesus says that we are the light of the world. So how are we the light? What are we the light about? We're not just the light. Many, because many Christians and churches have taken this verse to just mean we're the light of the world. We just do lots of good things. Yippee, good things, good things. Amen. Good deeds are in there. We're going to hammer good deeds in just a moment. But it's not good deeds for the sake of good deeds. He's not saying you're the light of the world. You just have to show the world goodness. There's lots of people who do good things out in the world and they don't know Jesus. We are the light of the world, not in the sense that we have to show the world goodness. We are the light of the world in that we have to show the world that Jesus is real. You are the light of the world. It's your job and my job and our job to show the world that Jesus is real and that he's amazing. Now, how do we do that? Do we do it with our mouths? Yes. But Jesus shows us something here. He doesn't focus on how we talk about him. He focuses on how we live for him because actions speak louder than words. So he says, you are the light of the world. Your job is not only to be salt, to preserve the culture, to hold back wickedness. Your job is to be light, and that is to show everybody around you that Jesus is a real person and that he's God, that he's powerful and present and loving and awesome and holy and amazing, to show them all of that by the way you live every single day. You are the light of the world. Let your, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works or your good deeds and give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. Now, when most of us, when we hear the word evangelism, most of us think immediately about one small piece of evangelism, which is telling people about Jesus. Now, that's an important part. If we never tell people about Jesus, they'll never know about Jesus. And so we have to close the deal. No question that the bridge illustration or handing out tracts or leading someone through the Gospels, the talking part is very important. You have to, I mean, you have to close the deal. But how do you get people to the place where they want Jesus? Jesus says, by your good works, by your good deeds, you shine the light into the world. We have to change our definition of of evangelism in our minds and in our hearts. We have to realize that we are doing evangelism every single day. From the moment you get up in the morning till the moment you go to bed at night, every interaction you have with your neighbors, with customers, with business partners, with whatever, politicians, people, hobby, hockey, fellow hockey players, whatever it is, every interaction you have with, with people is evangelism. Because through your character, through the way you treat people, through the way you behave, and through your good deeds, you are showing them something about Jesus. You're either showing them that he is real and that he is awesome and that he is amazing, or you're showing him or them that he is not real. The New Testament actually says very little in terms of instructions of how to do evangelism. Now, there's a few verses, very important, and we do have to do the talking part, no question. To not do that is cowardice. But the, but the New Testament doesn't ultimately say a whole lot about how you tell people about Jesus, but it says a whole lot about your behavior, doesn't it? Let your light shine before men. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, he says, you are ambassadors for Christ. The moment you became a follower of Christ, you got a job, okay? And your job is to be an ambassador for Jesus. You now, and you can't say no to that job. The moment you take on the name of Christ and you say, I'm a Christian and I'm going to church, you have just taken on a job and your job is to represent Jesus to people. Are you doing a good job or are you doing a bad job? If I'm an ambassador for Canada and I travel and I go to other countries, there's actually, it's actually very important how I behave. There's a number of things I can't do because I can't just do whatever I want and, and hang out with whoever I want and say whatever I want anymore. I'm not my own person because I'm representing a country. So if I'm an ambassador for Canada, I, I'm not my own person anymore. I'm not representing just me. I'm representing a country. I have to represent them well. When you became a follower of Jesus and began to call yourself a Christian, you're no longer your own person. You can't just say whatever you want. You can't just do whatever you want because you're representing somebody. So have you been re representing him well this last week or have you been dragging his name through the mud? You say, I don't want that responsibility. Don't put that responsibility on me. If you don't want the responsibility of carrying Jesus' name, stop calling yourself a Christian and stop going to church because that's part of the job. One of the most common complaints I hear as a pastor, and people seek me out, it's not just people from here, people from other churches, people in the community, and one of the most common complaints I get throughout the year is, I'm in a workplace, I'm in a marketplace, wherever it is, and I just saw so-and-so this last week tear a strip up and down someone else's back, just rip right into them, and now I see them in church and they're worshiping as if nothing's the matter. Or so-and-so called me up on the phone this week and just ripped me apart and walked all over me, and then there he is in cell as if there's nothing the matter. That's the most common complaint I always get. It actually turns people's stomachs. When people say, I'm following Jesus, and then they treat people badly. You are an ambassador for Christ. Some of us, when you, when you bring Christ's name into something and then you mistreat people, did you know that you could be condemning people to, a, to an eternity apart from Jesus? You ever thought about that? Because you might turn them off of Jesus so bad by the way you behave. You ever think about that? Is that worth it? And you did that, why? So you can make a buck? So you could, so you could beat the deadline? So you could close the deal? Was it worth it? To turn somebody off of Jesus forever just so, you could, just so you could get that last little bit of money, that last little bit of time. 
You sit there and you go, oh, Holy Spirit conviction. Whoa, what do I do? It's over. Thank goodness God is merciful. I mean, he took a big risk in saving you, didn't he? He took a big risk when he saved me and when he saved you and attached his name to us, didn't he? But he's gracious. That's the thing about God. He's gracious. So you say, what do I do? I mean, I totally walked over some people this last week. Totally walked over some employees. Totally walked over some potential business partners. Totally walked over some whoever. I totally walked on some people and mistreated them and dragged Jesus' name through the mud. What do I do? So good you came to church this morning. So simple. Make a phone call. Set up an appointment. Go for coffee. I don't know. Make eye contact if you need to. Please don't do it by text. Do you know what you do? You call them up and you say these two sweet little words. I'm sorry. That's what you do. Say, I'm sorry. You apologize. You say, oh, oh, I wish I would have left five minutes ago before you said that. That is so hard. You know that nobody in my industry does that. Oh, you're right. You're exactly right. Nobody does that except followers of Jesus. You are the light of the world. We're supposed to turn heads. We're supposed to turn heads and go, what was all that about? For good and not for evil. And apology, apologies are like the most wonderful thing because we all mess up. But you can say, I'm sorry, and you can treat people with dignity, and you can love them. And by doing that, you are the light of the world. You're showing them that Jesus is real and that he makes a difference in your life. And some of you are here today. Maybe you didn't exactly walk over someone this, just this past week, but you've got bitter rivalries and feuds with your competitors or whoever in the business world, the political world, wherever, you have bitter feuds and rivalries. A little competition is, that's nothing wrong with that. But it's more than competition. It's a bitter feud. It's rivalry. It's talking behind each other's backs. It's ill will. It's bad feelings. And the crazy thing is, often it's between two people who are Christians. You are the light of the world. You know what the world says when they see that? You go, well, that's just how business works. Yeah, exactly. That is how business works. It is. It's true. And the world looks at that and goes, look at those Christians are no different than the rest of us. We're supposed to be different. You are the light of the world is Jesus. We show that Jesus is real. There's a different way to live. There's a different person in charge of the universe and everybody thinks it's not me, it's him. And maybe this is the week that it's time to start praying and say, Jesus, it's time. Lord Jesus, show me how, show me when. How can I reach out a, an olive branch of peace and show some Christian charity and love to, and, and cross the divide of these bitter feuds? That's actually what Christianity is all about. You were hoping I would just tell you to go home and do some devotions, not actually tell you something about your life, your salt and your light. So I'm going to finish this message in just a, just a minute. But you know before we do? We're going to stop right here. And I want you to just take out a pen. I want you to take out a pencil, cell phone, whatever, okay? Scratch it into your hand. Write it on your hand, whatever. If you run on paper, just whatever. Just do it. I dare you, okay? You don't want to do it, don't do it. Okay? Everybody around you will notice, but that's fine. <laughs> but public shaming never hurt. No, I'm just kidding. Do, do whatever you want. But pen and paper. We're going to stop and listen to Jesus right now. I would hate for us to leave this message and go, oh, that was a great point about apologizing because I saw three other guys there that need to do that. <laughs> and you don't actually take time to say, Lord, oh, is there anybody I need to say sorry to? Oh, good, no. No, no. So we're just gonna, I'm just going to take a minute, and we're going to be silent, and we're just going to listen to the Lord. It doesn't take that long, trust me. When you want to listen to God, people say, I have a hard time hearing God. And usually it's because you're asking the wrong questions. You're asking God about big questions that take a long time to hear. If you want to hear God very quickly, what we're going to do now, we'll show you. Because the moment you ask God, is there someone I need to apologize to? If there's someone, you will hear, okay? So you just write down whatever he brings to your mind, okay? Maybe it's someone you need to reach out and you need to overcome a bitter feud with them. Maybe it's someone you need to go back and say sorry to for something a month ago, a week ago, six months ago, but you treated someone wrong. 
and you drag the name of Jesus through the mud. You're not, you're no, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You are an ambassador for the king of the universe. And he expects a certain amount of behavior out of you so that you don't make him look bad. So let's just ask Jesus. You write down that name, whatever he brings to mind. And after the service this week, you can go and you can make it better. That's being salt and light. Holy Spirit, we just want to take a moment here. I want to stop. I want to write down anybody you bring to mind that we need to apologize to someone. We need to heal up a bitter feud with someone. It's time for us to stop just being like everybody else. It's time for us to remember that we are light and we are ambassadors for you. Would you show us anyone that we've hurt or harmed or turned off? We can go back and we can make that right this week. Let's take a moment, just write down whatever he shows you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that it's not over. We make mistakes. None of us is perfect. But we can still shine your light by saying, I'm sorry. We can turn people's heads and make them think highly of you by our actions. Help us to have the courage and the humility to follow through this week. I want to finish by encouraging you with something from history. The early church actually conquered the Roman Empire with good deeds. We actually don't know our history very well often. We don't realize the power of good deeds. The early church actually conquered the Roman Empire by good deeds. See, we actually have a wrong view of how the early church exploded. We just think, you know, the apostles were amazing evangelists, and they were. They just spread out all over the place sharing the gospel. Tons and tons of people got saved, and then, you know, much of the Roman Empire, you know, was converted, and, and, and that was amazing. And, and yes, amen, the apostles were amazing evangelists. Yes, they traveled around. Yes, they preached and did miracles, and many people got saved. But do you know that at the end of the first century A.D., which is the century when the apostles were working, less at the end of the first century A.D., which was the end of the century, you know, kind of where the apostles did most of their work, all of their work almost, less than a tenth of a percent of the Roman Empire was Christian, okay? Fifty years later, 150 A.D., okay, now for sure all of the apostles are dead, they're gone. It's still less than one percent of the Roman Empire was Christian. But then you go from 150 A.D. and you fast forward ahead another 150 to 200 years, and it goes from less than one percent, it goes to almost half of the entire Roman Empire. But what happened there? The apostles, and I mean, they're the foundation stone for the church and the doctrine, all that sort of stuff. Amazing men of God. Awesome. Um, credible. They did all that preaching and working and miracles. And, you know, 100 years later, it's around 1%. But then 150, 200 years after that, it's almost 50%. What happened? I mean, we could talk for hours. Obviously, it's complex. It's not something that can be just boiled down to, you know, a little two-minute conclusion, but let me share with you three. I'll just share you three factors that cause, of the big factors that caused Christianity to absolutely explode in Roman Empire. Number one, one in, in 165 and 251 AD, two massive plagues hit the Roman Empire. Uh, scholars now believe it was the first case of smallpox hitting Western civilization, Okay. Absolutely brutal. The first one hit in 165 AD. It lasted for 15 years. Killed 25 to 35% of the population of the entire Roman Empire. Think about that. That is unimaginable. That's like if some kind of super disease hit Canada today and 8 to 12 million people died. Okay? A third of the population wiped out the entire, in the entire empire. I mean, just carnage. Okay? You say, well, what did that have to do with Christianity? Well, Interesting thing, the pagans were so terrified of this disease, which was most of the Romans, that was 99% of them, they were so terrified by this disease when the first one hit in 165 that the moment a person would start to show symptoms, I mean the moment a person would show symptoms, a wife, a spouse, you know, or a wife or a spouse, you know, kids, friends, they would push them into the streets and abandon them. 
hundreds of thousands of people died in gutters and in streets. Nobody would touch them. They were thirsty. They were hungry. They would die slow, torturous deaths because they'd be abandoned. People were so scared. That's how they die. Meanwhile, same time as this happening, the pagans are abandoning their loved ones in the streets. Christians, when their family members and friends and fellow Christians would get sick, they would actually stay with them and nurse them right to the very end at the risk of their own lives. In fact, many of the church leaders who were the key leaders in the churches when that first plague hit died because they spent so much time with, with people who had smallpox. But the crazy thing is, interesting thing, is it turns out that with a lot of diseases, and smallpox is one of them, even if you don't have medicine or a vaccination or anything that will cure the disease itself, if all you do with a lot of these diseases, you don't know medicine, no modern you know, technology to fight the stuff off, if all you do is just take proper care of people and clean them, give them some water and give them some food and just love them and care for them, you actually reduce the mortality rate by two-thirds. In other words, what happened, and they, they, they've done tons of studies on this. It's incredible. I, I wish I could go on and on and read a big book right now on, on uh, Christian history called The Triumph of Christianity. It's fascinating books and the stats and stuff that they found. For example, like one thing they found is that Christians lived longer in the Roman Empire. They actually, you look, they did an analysis of all kinds of tombstones and stuff. Christians lived longer. It had to do with some of the stuff I'm going to tell you right now. But what happened with these Christians is because they would, were caring for their own, actually the Christian mortality rate from, from smallpox was three times less than the rest of the Romans. And so at the end of each of these plagues, what actually happened is just by virtue of the fact that if you were a pagan and you got smallpox, you were three times more likely to die from it than if you were Christian. And just by that fact, then the plague was so big and it hit so many people, such a vast percentage of the people in the, in, in the, in the empire, that at the, end of each of the, at the end of each of the plagues, the percentage of Christians in the empire actually jumped because more Christians, had, lots and lots and lots more Christians had just plain survived. But something else happened as well. Imagine you're a regular Roman citizen. You watch your pagan neighbor push his family into the streets the moment they have symptoms of the plague. And on the other side of you, you watch your Christian neighbor risk their life to love and care for their loved ones. Hundreds of thousands of Roman citizens watched the difference, and the gap between the pagans and the Christians was so vast that they flocked into the church as a result of these plagues. They flocked into the arms of Jesus and out of the arms of the demonic pagan gods because the difference in behavior between Christians and pagans was so huge. Of course we're going to change. They're Jesus, there must be something to this Jesus thing. They're so different. I want that. And they flocked to Jesus. I don't have much time, but we could talk about women too. Thousands, tens of thousands of women in the Roman Empire, rich, senators' wives, generals' wives, people who were women who were close to the emperor, right down to slave girls and poor people, tens of thousands in the second, third, and fourth centuries, tens of thousands of women flocked into the Christian church. Why? Because the difference between how the Christians treated women and their families, their moms and their daughters and their wives, the gap between that and how the pagans treated them was so much that one historian I read this past week said the only thing that surprised him was that all of the women in the Roman Empire didn't become Christians. The difference was so big. And they flocked to Jesus because of it. And we could talk about the poor, how the Christians were so good at taking care of the poor. They found a list. Historians found this list. One church, just in, in the city of Rome, one church at one point was taking care of 1,500 widows and orphans, feeding clothing, taking care of them, okay? They had their own little mini, the Christians were running their own little mini welfare system right in the middle of the Roman Empire. And it totally was putting to shame the pagan temples and the pagan religions which did nothing for the poor. It was so bad that in the 4th century, uh, Emperor Julian, he was trying to get uh, a revival of paganism over Christianity. And so many people were flocking to Christianity by this point. He's like, we've got to stop some. We've got to compete with them. They found a letter he wrote to the high priest of one of the temples he frequented. And in there, he talks about how the Christians are putting us to shame. He said, they not only take care of their own poor, they take care of ours, and we don't do anything. And he's trying to get the pagans to take care of the poor, and he can't do it, because their gods aren't real. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. 
And the Christians actually conquered the Roman Empire. Well, they had the words too. You've got to talk about Jesus in order to seal the deal. But they conquered the Roman Empire through their deeds. It was their deeds that shone the light of the reality of who Jesus is to the empire. And the same is true for us today. We are the light in this culture. And we need to be so different at work and at home and in business that there's a contrast. Whoa, those Christians. I mean, I absolutely hate some of the stuff they believe and stand for. That's salt. It burns sometimes. But there is something radically different about the way they live and interact with people than everybody else. There has to be a noticeable difference. Of course, the culture is a little different today. It's not a, you know, our government takes care of lots of the poor, so we're big on taking care of the poor here at Selfham, but it doesn't get noticed the same way. And we give away cars to single moms and lots of people who just need them and lot, tons and tons of hampers and the four ones. We do all kinds of stuff. It doesn't get noticed so much now because the government takes care of the poor. We've got a medical system, so caring for the sick, it's not as obvious. You know, our, our society generally values women, so we've got to be good to women, but it's not as noticed. You say, how do we stand out today? Well, again, Jesus has the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to expound on this practically. How do we stand out? But let me just leave you with four quick ones and we're done. Four quick ones for us today to stand out. I already talked about the first one. Apologize. Apologize to anyone you've heard or offended. That stands out. Number two, though, I would say this week, meditate. Am I a cheerful, hard worker in my workplace? Two things. Am I a cheerful, hard worker in my workplace? little news flash to you all. Grumpy, miserable people don't attract other people to Jesus. You ever notice that? Grumpy, miserable people don't attract anyone to Jesus. You're all grumpy and miserable, and then you talk to people, well, I don't, I don't want to go to your party on Friday night because I don't drink. I'm going to church. Thanks a lot for advertising for Jesus. You know, slap on the back. Miserable, grumpy people are a horrible advertisement for Jesus. So are lazy people. You want to win people to Christ in your workplace? You want, to, you want to be an ambassador for Christ in your workplace? It's a lot more than just opening up your Bible at lunch. I love that. That takes courage. But, I, you know, people, I'm going to read my Bible at lunch, and that's going to show the light of Jesus. It'll show the light of Jesus if you're a cheerful, hard worker. If you're lazy and you're grouchy and you open your Bible at work, I think Jesus would just rather you, you keep that in the lunch bag. Don't associate yourself with me today. You know, put on your I'm a Buddhist t-shirt or something and then be grumpy. I'm just kidding. And take that off the internet. We're not going to play that one. I don't want to get in trouble. Third thing, do I have joy in my suffering? This is the atomic bomb of proving to people that Jesus is real and that he's awesome. Do I have joy when things are hard? That is the atomic bomb of you want to prove Jesus is real when things are hard? You still find joy in him. You don't complain. You're not bitter. You're not like everybody else. That's the thing. The gap between how we behave and how we view things and how everyone else does it has to be totally different. We don't do things the way everyone else does. We are the light of the world. So I'd encourage you on those things to pray about them this week every day. Lord, am I a cheerful hard worker? Pray about it every day and begin to be convicted about your attitude at work and how hard you work. Begin to be convicted about, am I joyful in suffering and hard things? Lastly, I would challenge you to ask Jesus to give you a good deed assignment this week. Just ask him, Lord, I want a good deed assignment. All right, the choir's going to come out. We're going to sing a final song here on being salt and light, and it's just such a blessing to be able to then respond to, to Jesus with worship. I would challenge you to do the, the challenge this week, but I just want to pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we want to be light. We want to be light. We want to be salt. Help us to live up to everything you're calling us to be. Remind us this week. Help us to grow in cheerful, hardworkingness. Help us to grow in joy and suffering. Help us to grow in making things right and, teach, and treating people right so that we can, we can bring fame and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.